I think that you know, for too long, the U.S. has used those exchange rates as a weapon, essentially, against developing nations and taking away their sovereignty. That's dope. This episode is sponsored by Bullish and Arculus. Stay tuned for more information on both of these incredible companies later in the episode. Arguably the most important people in the Bitcoin space are the builders. Luckily, we have people like Pierre Rochard, who's in charge of product at Kraken, integrating Bitcoin in the Lightning Network and making the tools that will lead us to mainstream adoption and making the Bitcoin Lightning Networks much easier to use, even for your grandma. We talked about why Bitcoin is so important and what they're building to bring it to the mainstream. I, I, I was talking yesterday with uh, Peter Wall yeah. from, from Argo, and yeah. he was definitely breaking down the sort of Texas Bitcoin migration, and it happened fast. Yeah, yeah. He's like, literally, since they shut down China last yeah, year. Thanks to China, yeah. Yeah. But you, were you always in Texas, or did you move there specifically for this reason? So no, I was. Um, I went to UT Austin. Oh, nice. uh, so I was in college there, and my my parents moved there, or my dad's job, you know, when I was in middle school. So the Bitcoin community came to you. Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much. Although I also uh, lived in New York for a while for five years, and so I moved to New York after I graduated from college. Moved back a couple of years ago, uh, back to Austin when the kids were running around. I was like, yeah, right. yeah you have my same story. So yeah. I, I was in, uh, I went to college in Philly. Okay. I was in New York City for 10 years. I'm a little bit older than you probably. Then I was down here for five years yeah. and then I ran back to my hometown, Gainesville, Florida, when I had our kids. Right. Like, yeah. the, the, my, the grandparents aren't coming to me. So I got to That's exactly it. Yeah, no, I gotta get close to the grandparents. But you got lucky because like uh, New York is ceasing to be the financial capital and now everything seemingly is moving sort of to Florida and to Texas. But, yeah. uh, so what's it like in Austin now? I mean, it's amazing. Uh, not only are there a lot of Bitcoiners out there, there's a lot of Bitcoin startups as well. Um, Unchained Capital uh, has yeah. their office there. Um, and yeah, the uh, Riot blockchain is one of kind of the big publicly traded companies. I'm on their advisory board right. and they've got their facility out there. So do you think that it's been a huge boon for the mining industry to see the hash rate migrate from China to North America? A hundred percent. I think historians will look back on it as like that was the biggest moment uh, in geopolitics of the 21st century was China shutting down. I mean, it's it's such a self-own. Um, they don't realize <laughs> they it yet. They dumped on themselves so yeah. hard. Yeah. Um, it's, it's astounding. And it, because, I mean, in my mind, each mining rig represents so much wealth. Um, it's like if you had banned oil and gas production, you know, during the Rockefeller days of uh, the, the big boom. Why? Why would they make such a huge mistake? And, and it's not like they had no context to understand what was happening because the whole narrative has been China controls too much hash rate. China could be the one to destroy Bitcoin. Not true. Yeah. But of course, the, it was always that we feared that China had too much control. Seems like the kind of government that would want to maintain and keep R that. Right. <laughs> um, I think that they their concern is about maximizing the usage of their currency, the Chinese yuan, and uh, they're willing to just try to obliterate everything else so that the yuan is the only currency that people are using, whether it's in the Asia-Pacific region or in Africa, um, and that that's what gives them strength because they can print more of it. Um, 
But ultimately, I, I think that's short-sighted. It's, it's the innovator's dilemma, right? That they have this business that's doing well, uh, and then they've got this something here that's disruptive, uh, and rather than embracing it, um, they're, they're rejecting it. Contrast with El Salvador, right? Where in El Salvador, they don't have their own currency to print. And so they don't have that dilemma, and they can go out and embrace Bitcoin. They've, they've already been using the dollar, so it's not like they've had their own currency. Right, but there's a deeper story there with El Salvador that people maybe don't realize what you just touched on. They're dollarized, yeah. right? So El Salvador doesn't have, they have to obviously deal with the IMF and the United States, but their currency is the dollar, so they don't have to really worry about the hyperinflation. But they also don't worry, have to worry about if they adopted the currency that the United States would then purposely devalue and destroy their own. I think that's probably why we haven't seen a lot of other countries follow, right? If you're a South American country that's not primarily using the dollar, the United States could literally destroy your currency that's right, instantaneously. Yeah. So El Salvador sort of ends up being the only place this experiment could happen. That's right. I, I think there are a few other dollarized countries, so maybe right. we'll see some headlines uh, soon. I think but probably like yeah. today. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps today, some big <laughs> announcements. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. And I, I think that you know, for too long, the U.S. has used those exchange rates as a weapon, essentially, against developing nations and taking away their sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be interesting if this, I guess, experiment in El Salvador and wherever we sort of see next can grow fast enough in the face of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I foresee El Salvador becoming like a Hong Kong or Singapore of Latin America in terms of the amount of wealth that they're going to be able to attract by going on the Bitcoin standard. And then for all those other countries that are in that incumbent innovators dilemma, um, they're going to see how, fa how far ahead El Salvador is getting. And that's going to motivate them to be like, all right, well, even if we have our local currency, like, let's just go in, all in on, on Bitcoin. Right, but even if they don't go all in, aren't there sort of intermediate steps that we can cheer for? Like, just add some to your central bank. Yeah, or, absolutely. Right. Or, or just make it so that there's very little, you know, there's not a huge regulatory burden uh, and people can adopt it, right? The, the individuals, the corporations in those countries, um, they have, you know, yeah, uh, I mean, thriving economies already that uh, could, could become Bitcoinized. So basically we just, we can still cheer for reducing friction basically in any way possible for the, yeah. it's almost like just don't fight it. Right. Allow it to happen, because it's right. going to. I think that Ukraine has been sort of, well, maybe step it back. Canada to me was sort of the really big event, right? right. Because um, people, I think, can't happen to us here sort of mentality right. and saw obviously transactions, their banks first, but then even their Bitcoin transactions really started to be blocked. And then the war obviously broke out in Russia and Ukraine. And we've seen sort of these evolving use cases, which to me has been a crazy narrative. You started with sort of peer-to-peer -peer cash, digital gold, on and on and on. Were you surprised at all to see sort of the level of commitment from the crypto community to raise, I mean, it's probably $100 million by now as we're talking. That wasn't a use case we've been talking about, yeah. right? Well, and I, I wonder, too, how much of it was the crypto community versus um, people who felt for Ukraine who bought crypto and then, uh, you know, donated it. And so really it was like the, using it as a rails um, because when you're in a war zone, things don't work as well as they should, right? We're in, in, in uh, peacetime. We take it for granted that you can access your bank. You can go to the ATM. Things work. 
Um, and it's, it's, to me, it was amazing, too, in Canada um, that it kind of broke down this, this idea that sanctions are about foreign policy. And for the first time in a long time, people are like, oh, you can use sanctions domestically, apparently, <laughs> and there's not really any kind of uh, rules. And um, there's kind of been this breakdown in norms. I think it was driven by the lockdowns. Yeah, where sure. it's like, oh, all right, well, if they can force you to stay in your house, why wouldn't they be able to take your bank account from you, right? Um, and so I think that uh, there's a lot of uh, rethinking in terms of our rights. Um, if the government can take them away so quickly, what about something like Bitcoin, where we can defend our rights much more effectively uh, than we could with a bank account? Right, but I think your average person never considered that domestic sanctions, certainly not in a no. first world or a culture like that. But that makes you then, we go back to China, that's effectively the purpose of their central bank digital currency, right? You talk about yuan dominance, but it's really gonna be digital yeah. yuan dominance yeah. and call it a central bank's wet dream or a government's wet dream, but like a literal exact to the penny control of the money supply. That plus their idea of a social credit score, so really micromanaging our daily lives. Um, I think it's completely contrary to what America is about. I, I immigrated here from France. My parents immigrated here from France. And they did so because they wanted more freedom um, and more opportunity. And so I think that you know, the United States needs to go in the opposite direction of saying, we're not doing a CBDC. Um, if if people want to use stable coins, they can use stable coins, but that's not going to be issued and controlled and surveilled by the government 24 seven. Um, and, and there's, Already today, with the banking system as it is, the Bank Secrecy Act is unconstitutional. This third-party doctrine was fabricated by judiciary fiat, and um, I'm, I'm hoping that it, it gets rolled back eventually, but we're so deep into this mindset of the government should be able to control everything because someone somewhere might do something bad. It's like, Boogeyman. that's not how risk works. Right, but your, your family immigrated here for more freedom, exactly as you said. Do you feel like they've found it? Uh, they have, relative to France. Um, now, I'm, I'm hopeful that Bitcoin not only is going to bring more freedom to the U.S., but also more freedom to the France as well. And, you know, I, I, I would like to move back a little bit, you know, and uh, work on my French again. But uh, <laughs> until, until they, um, you know, Bitcoinize their economy, uh, I'm going to stay put here in Texas. Uh, so you're, listen, you're obviously you're at Kraken. Mm -hmm. Kraken's a bank. Yep, it is right. now, yeah. <laughs> right, Kraken is now a bank, one of the few. I, I spoke at length with Caitlin Long, and she seemed to be sort of, obviously, other bank in Wyoming, uh, sort of ringing the alarms that there might be a huge fight coming with regulators on the banking side. Is that something that you guys are, like, actively monitoring or thinking about at Kraken? So, uh, thankfully, it's not uh, part of my job duties at all, because <laughs> I focus 100% on Bitcoin and Lightning that are like the opposite of asking for permission. It's really about, let's use open source software to build value for clients and for the company. Um, and so, uh, I thankfully don't have to deal with the uh, banking regulation side. Um, but I, I think that, you know, they they've put together an excellent team uh, that's going to, to be able to make progress. Okay, so you're talking about obviously your job then is product focusing on Lightning and Bitcoin. Where are we at, would you say, I guess we could talk about like on the adoption curve, mm -hmm. um, especially obviously with so many other com competitive protocols yep. being developed. 
uh, or even technologically with it being something that could scale to, I mean, we all have the dream that the Lightning Network is the payment uh, you know, layer for five billion people yeah. in the world. How realistic is that? Where are we at on those curves? So, so in a sense, we could do that today. We could onboard the world today. The problem would be that we'd be onboarding on them onto custodial solutions. And so if we want to go the non-custodial route, I think that historically, Bitcoin has always had this tension uh, that so many people hold their Bitcoin at Coinbase, at Kraken, at other uh, custodians. Um, but at the same time, the hardware wallet companies move millions of units. So there are lots of folks who are taking control of their keys and who are empowering themselves. Um, so I think that it's going to continue to be the case that there's a mix of non-custodial and custodial. Um, on Lightning in particular, I think that uh, the, the scaling solutions that are coming out now um, give me no concerns at all about our ability to onboard as many people as we can who want to do non-custodial. Uh, to me, I think the point of friction is going to be about trusting yourself to hold your own keys. Oh, yeah, we're our own worst enemy. There's no yeah. question there. Yeah, uh, versus um, the cost of doing an on-chain transaction. Like, I think that's actually going to continue to be very low. Um, we saw last year, because blockchain.com adopted SegWit that, and other factors as well, the on-chain fees on Bitcoin are astoundingly low. Um, relative to some of the other competitors where they're, you know, trending up. $500 ETH transaction, yeah. right, of course. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing a bit of a convergence on the utility side where um, Lightning Labs just announced a new protocol, Taro, which um, leverages Bitcoin's on, uh, layer one upgrade it had last year, Taproot, Taproot, in order to be able to issue tokens on the Bitcoin blockchain itself natively. Um, embedded inside of some Merkle trees. I won't get into the, right. uh, the, the cryptography, but it's actually seeing kind of a convergence of feature set with the competitors while still being highly scalable, reliable, having kind of the same uh, ethos that Bitcoin has always had of being a solid layer one to build on top of. Right, so it really all starts with the foundation. Yeah, yeah. And, and Bitcoin obviously is the best foundation to, to, to build these systems on. It, it's just interesting sort of seeing the proliferation of all these competitors over time. And then obviously, I think for people who are Bitcoin maximalists or deeply down it, it's been a sort of a mental, I'm going to call it mental Olympics, but a growing curve to even accept that these things being built on Bitcoin are okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, I think that there's a difference between saying you can do a token on Bitcoin versus you, you should, should <laughs> or that you should buy one uh, versus buying Bitcoin. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of, you know, healthy debate around that. Obviously, I'm in the camp that you should only invest in Bitcoin. Sure. Um, and um, I think that what, what, I'd, what I'd like to see personally are tokens that are pure utility. So it's more like a ticket to go to an event where after the event, the token, you know, disappears. Um, kind it's of not, an NFT on Bitcoin. Yeah, not something that, well, an NFT, NFTs <laughs> have a, a long life. They do have that sort, but they can have that, right, a, basically an NFT that burns. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so that it entirely removes the speculative aspect of it. And it's purely about the utility of what it's going to enable for you. Um, because I think that, yeah, I, I, I think people should be speculating on uh, holding Bitcoin for the long term. Agree. Yeah. Okay, well, which uh, I think probably people like us isn't speculating at all. 
investing. Right, right. The, in, in the, in the uh, Austrian <laughs> yeah. economics world, it's like yeah. everything is speculation. Yes. So uh, the, we don't know the future. <laughs> right. That, that, yeah. Absolutely true. But that's like an infinite regress of yeah. you literally can't buy anything. Right. right, right, without, right. without it being considered well, speculation. Speculation isn't bad. Yeah. It, you know, um, it, it just has to uh, be supported by some fundamentals. Uh, yeah. Have you ever been trading crypto and during bouts of high volatility had your exchange go completely offline or seen the order books go thin and have absolutely no liquidity for your trade? I know that you have. It's happened to every single crypto trader, but it's not an issue anymore thanks to Bullish. Bullish is a powerful new exchange for digital assets that offers deep liquidity, automated market making, and industry-leading security. Combining the innovations of DeFi with the regulated environment of traditional finance, Bullish empowers users to trade with confidence across variable market conditions while securing a regulated environment that's backed by multi-billion dollar liquidity contributions from the Bullish treasury. Follow at Bullish on Twitter or visit bullish.com slash Melker to learn more. We all believe and know that cryptocurrencies are the future, but it's still very scary to be your own bank and have to secure your assets. Most of the traditional hardware wallets are hard to use. They're clunky and people lose their private keys. It's not really that efficient. And that's where the Arculus key card comes in. I absolutely love this thing. I've transitioned largely to using it for most of my assets. It's literally just a card that you tap right on your mobile device. You can send, receive, swap, buy, and sell crypto with that simple action. It's literally amazing. There's no cords. There's no charging. There's no Bluetooth. The only person that has access to your crypto is you. You guys have got to try it. And guess what? You can buy it right on Amazon. Go buy your Arculus on Amazon now. Thomas Lee was on a panel and uh, I was doing the commentary, uh, myself and Robert Breedlove, and he basically said that we need more speculation actually in crypto that basically it's 2.1 to every Bitcoin being actually used. There's 2.5 in speculation. And he looked at it at the dollar, it's like 97 to one. Right. And he was like, right. you actually need way more speculation and things being happened and people trading around this to have it become a bigger market. It was a really interesting dichotomy I'd never considered or heard of. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I still think we're very early, yeah. uh, which is crazy for, for us who've been around for years. It's like uh, Bitcoin's liquidity is is good, uh, but, you know, if you compare it to treasuries or something like, uh, you know, the stock market, um, we could see a lot more volume, a lot bigger coin. We're smaller than some companies. Yeah. So, you know, not, yeah. not even the biggest ones, but, you yeah. know, yeah. especially when you break it down asset by asset. So you're building all this stuff, right? Lightning Network's great. The thing seemingly nobody kind of talks about, in other countries it's amazing, but here, if you and I are having this conversation and I'm like, let me buy you a coffee, just Venmo me the money, there's no taxable transaction there. If you lightning me Bitcoin, you just sold some to sell it to me. Right, right. To, to send it to me. The capital gains tax issue is a problem. Um, I know that Senator Lummis and others in Congress are trying to push through a $600 kind of threshold. I hope it's inflation adjusted. I was going to say, 600 yeah. is going to be 6,000 by the time they pass it. Right, right, exactly. Um, so that, that'll help. It, it won't help, though, with this idea that, uh, you know, it's the kind of the Bitcoin pizza problem, that uh, the value is going to go up so much in the future. Why would you spend your Bitcoin today? Um, and I kind of see it as, um, that's true, but if you're getting paid in Bitcoin, you don't have an option. Uh, so it's really about building the circular economy and how do we get more people getting paid in Bitcoin? And that will naturally lead to more people spending Bitcoin. That's such a good point. Like if you're buying it to hold it, 
you're never going to use it. Right. Right. Which is because you're using a your, your fiat paycheck and right. you're putting it in there. Yep. So you basically have to become entirely Bitcoin native, and your your bank account is the thing that you sometimes have to use when you need to like pay a bill, and, and they there's won't no accept other the option. Bitcoin. Yeah. Can we get there in the United States to a place where like enough people are literally their banking system is native Bitcoin and everything else is ancillary? I think so. I think so. Um, on, on the pull side, people are getting pulled into Bitcoin, not only because it's value increasing, but because it gives you more freedom. It gives you more control. On the push side, people are getting pushed out of the fiat system by inflation. They're getting pushed out by these sanctions, by all of these uh, limitations that they have. So I think that mass adoption is inevitable. We can debate about the timeline, right? Uh, that's it always- It doesn't matter though. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it's taken way longer than I thought. Uh, the, but at the same time, I, I see the progress every day. So uh, I can't uh, get too impatient. You said it's taken longer than you thought. When did you get into Bitcoin? Like, what was your, uh, I guess, your uh, evolution story? Yeah, so um, at the beginning of 2013, Early. Um, so early. <laughs> now, I was a broke college student, so it's not like I was like Barry Silbert, you know, scooping up all the coins or the Winklevite. <laughs> be nice. Um, it would be nice. <laughs> it would be nice. But uh, that's not the hand I was dealt. But nevertheless, um, seeing that April bull market uh, and there was like this narrative about Cyprus adopting Bitcoin, which was turned out to be complete bunk. Um, <laughs> But uh, again, too early, right? Um, and then we, you know, we see El Salvador doing it years and years later. Um, and then in the bull market in December, uh, when it went up to $1,200, which was like mind blowing at the time, um, there I, I thought like, it's game over. Like we're, this is hyper Bitcoinization. We did it. It's just gonna keep going up. <laughs> and you know, I, I think that at the top of any bull market, everyone's sentiment becomes, it's going to a million dollars. Super cycle. Yeah, super cycle, laser eyes, and that's kind of just what defines the top of the bull market. Um, and then conversely, at the bottom of the bear market, I remember the despair uh, after that. Zero, uh, um, going yeah, to zero. It's I think literally it was the a, exact opposite uh, sentiment and the exact same thing. I remember having a conversation with my friend who, um, he founded the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute and I was helping him with the website. And I remember we were talking about how we should keep the website up even if it goes to zero, just <laughs> as kind of like a historical thing. But even thing. you were like, yeah. you don't believe it, yeah, but you but you're can't joking help, about but, but you, it. It's but you morbid. also can't help with it creeping in. Yeah, there's yeah. that one percent. Maybe it could. Yeah, right. But so I think the thing that's really changed now, certainly for you, is early. The Bitcoin going to zero narrative is done. Yeah, you don't even hear it. No, never, never. Um, I mean, except for people who are like uh, you know living in their own world. Peter Schiff. <laughs> yeah, Peter Schiff. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's completely unrealistic. I think that the network effects have gained a critical mass where, um, yeah, it's here to stay, as they say now. That's the narrative. <laughs> yeah, he here to stay, but then I guess then it starts to be an issue of how we define it and jurisdictionally. Like every single, we have, first of all, we have every country in the world that needs to figure it out. And then you try to operate in the United States, which you guys actually have the balls to do. <laughs> you have to go state to state. Right? I mean, you guys probably have more lawyers to figuring out what you can do in every uh, state in the United States than most uh, you know, companies have dealing with regul regulators around the world. We've got a great legal team led by uh, Marco Santori, and uh, they're, they're doing a great job keeping us compliant, keeping us able to you know, deliver Bitcoin into the hands of millions of people. Um, it is a challenge, and um, 
it, it, in Europe, it seems like there's a move to make it more challenging. Mm. Um, but um, I'm hopeful that the European community is going to come together and, and explain, like, hey, look, this has value to us. This isn't just about criminals. Uh, this is about real people. In fact, very little of it is about criminals. It's like less than one percent. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, and now do the dollar. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, let's benchmark. Let's see. How are we doing relative to the dollar? I think they were actually doing pretty well. Yeah. I mean, and, and we see the, the FUD cycles, yeah. right? And slowly we're actually eliminating them. China eliminated themselves. They were the best right. one, right? The China ban was the every six months if Bitcoin dropped, it was because China had banned right. it. Now they're really banned it, so we don't need to worry about that. I think we're now seeing the, the FUD cycle of only for criminals and stuff really diminished. The new one seems to be for, uh, for getting around sanctions. Oh, okay, Whoa, sanctions, I think, yeah. even, I think even energy's slowing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, energy's slowing because the, the facts don't back it up. Yeah, I know, so. it's hard when you have to actually use science and math and, and facts. Yeah, um, and Nick Carter has done a great job of pointing that out, that, hey, if you actually look at the energy use mix, it's better than what most people are doing on the grid. Um, so I think Bitcoin has an advantage there. Um, it's just about education. And then you have folks like Senator Elizabeth Warren who are so dogmatic and they're like entrenched in their position uh, that it's gonna be tough to uh, help, help them see, hey, look, Bitcoin's not so bad. I heard Jack Dorsey recently met with a bunch of uh, congressional Democrats, so hopefully uh, things are moving. I, I think that the bipolarity and sort of that it's a bipartisan issue is overblown, personally. I think she's the loudest. She is, yeah. But I don't think most of them agree with her, even on her side. That's right. I've spoken to a lot of congressional Democrats. I've had them on the show and whatever. Most, I think most politicians understand reasonably that technology moving forward is probably a good thing and that freedom is probably a good thing. Absolutely. I, I think it's, it's her and Brad Sherman. So it's like two out of, He's you know, lose, hundreds of uh, con Congress people. Um, and so I definitely think that uh, in terms of bringing people together, Bitcoin does a great job of that. And, you know, it's going to bring people towards the center. So um, I saw Senator Lummis has been making outreach to the Democrats. So I think that in the U.S., it gives me a tremendous amount of hope that not only is Bitcoin not going to get banned, but we're, we're actually going to get constructive policy uh, that's going to help accelerate Bitcoin adoption here. I, I like to believe that. And it certainly seems we're trending that way. And a year ago, I would have told you still maybe we're kind of screwed. Yeah. But you pointed out Europe, right? Not, we don't have to look very far to see the opposite happening. Like, talk about the idea of the buying the coffee and the taxes. Well, now in Europe, if uh, I want to, you know, we wa I want to send you a Venmo for something over $1,000, I need to get your ID and your social security number. And not only that, I need to submit it to the proper authorities. Right, right. It's insane. It, it is. Um, and their mindset, they say it's about money laundering and about the environment. But I think they have a real concern about the ongoing legitimacy of the Euro project itself. Um, I remember when I was a kid going to France, we used the French franc. Right. And the euro is very young. Um, and I think that in terms of brand value, it's not like the U.S. dollar where it's like... The, it's not the global reserve currency. Right, and right. nobody's ever claimed it to be. Uh, I agree. And, and anchored in this past with the gold standard. Um, but uh, I, so I think that they're very sensitive to the idea that... Today we have the euro, tomorrow maybe we all just use Bitcoin because right. they've gone through a currency transition before and they know it can happen pretty quickly. Um, and they don't want it to happen because the euro gives um, a lot of not only control but the ability to give subsidies 
uh, internally and to kind of, um, you know, politically grease the wheels, uh, they rely on that a lot. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of uh, misdirection about their motives when really it's about keeping control of the money printer. Yeah, and also here, we can vote you out. Right. We might not, but like Elizabeth Warren's position puts her at legitimate risk with her constituents. Maybe she doesn't view it that way, that, that love cryptocurrency or, or maybe being even pro-Bitcoin puts you in favor. With the if you're most of these people in the EU are basically unelected, a lot of them if, are. If you're yeah. being appointed, yeah. you don't have the political risk of making these decisions. You can actually go and do these things. That's right. But that's and, a problem. And the the central banks being independent. Uh, so I think the European central banks far more um, independent, but really unaccountable, right? And so um, compared to the U.S., I think the Maybe the Fed is not independent enough in the U.S. where uh, its monetary policy is affected by who's president, what the priorities are, when the next election is. Um, so, yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. Right. So, uh, I mean, that brings you, bring you to the Fed in, in the United States. We've obviously seen the, out of, everybody knows the memes at this point, 40% of the money supply ever printed in the last 18 months, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Now we get to this kind of interesting crossroads where they speak more hawkishly, right? But there's an election coming, right? Right. You said maybe they're not as independent as we think. How how do you thread that needle of monetary policy if you know that what you have to do would make you lose your job? Right. <laughs> and the only person who uh, has been able to do that was Paul Volcker uh, in the early 80s, and he's no longer with us. But, so. debt, but debt to GDP back then was like 35% or something. Now we're in the hundreds of percents. I, I, I agree. It's a different, it's a, it's it's a you completely can't do different it. scenario. Um, and, and yet, that, technically, that's what they're supposed to be doing right now is raising interest rates because of how high inflation is. So I don't think that they're going to be able to do it. I think inflation is going to continue to run. Um, that's going to mean that the, the real value of the debt's going to go down uh, with inflation. And it's just a, a, soft, a soft default. Um, and uh, I think it's massive tailwind for Bitcoin, obviously. So uh, I, th I think that I'm, I, I, you know, you mentioned super cycle uh, jokingly as kind of being the hyperbolish on top. But I do think that, you know, I heard somebody say that we're in a bear market now. And in my mind, a bear market is an 85% retrace on Bitcoin and a 99% on, you know, the altcoins. And extended. And extended. Um, we're not seeing that at all. Uh, what we're seeing is like 25 to 35% uh, off the highs of like 64 grand. Um, and so I think that we're going to enter into another bull phase without ever having really had that capitulation that we had in December 2018. Right, it's all about perspective and it's all about low time preference because yeah. like, I, you know, I'm like a chart guy, I love to, yeah. I still, I just love technical analysis, but if you zoom out on the Bitcoin chart, it's literally a, since inception, higher highs and higher lows and up and to the right. Yeah. There's no bear market, right? No bear market since 2009. <laughs> right. I mean, but you, the funny thing is you can make the same argument for the Dow Jones. Yeah. Right. right. The Great Depression is a blip on right. a chart that you've zoomed out for over 100 years and was the greatest buying opportunity in history. But to, like, why can't people see that and understand that every single time this asset goes down, you should be doing everything in your power? Yeah. Buy, buy early and hold for the long term. Um, I think that it's going to continue to work for Bitcoin, not because um, I'm, you know, 
uh, trying to pump a pyramid scheme, but just looking at the fundamentals of the engineering. This thing is engineered to last forever. And so I think that uh, it's a, it's a no-brainer that it's going to continue to deliver value. Uh, we talked about hyper-Bitcoinization, but do you, do you see a world legitimately where Bitcoin becomes the global reserve asset? 100%. I think um, it's going to demonetize all of the other assets. Today we use real estate as money. We use uh, so true. Yeah, um, art as money. Um, and so I think that by demonetizing all of these other assets, um, not only does it become the global reserve currency like the dollar is, or, or like gold was, but it's going to be 10 times, 100 times bigger than that um, because it has much better properties than those other reserve currencies had. So then the question becomes, what does the world look like if that happens? I, I think the world looks fantastic. I, I do not have the uh, doomer view. It's not of, the Mad Max. Yeah, uh, no, you, no, quite the opposite, really. protection to Gastown. <laughs> I, I have the uh, utopian uh, vision that uh, fix the money, fix the world. That today we live in the Mad Max world, right? Um, where you have countries invading each other and you have um, you know, people uh, paying off voters and uh, committing mass fraud with the uh, COVID relief and all of that. Like, I, I, that's, that's the Mad Max world we live in today. Um, I think Bitcoin fixes that. Love it. Where can everybody follow you and keep up with you after this conversation? Absolutely. At Pierre underscore Rochard on Twitter. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. And I look forward to living uh, in Utopia with you. Yeah. Hopefully in like five years and not 50. Absolutely. I'm going to be really old in 50 years. <laughs> so let's not do that. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Ed.